Salam and hello. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bekela Piper, and I am so glad that you've tuned in today. Over the last several months, I've been exploring the concept of home on the show. I've had guests here who've talked about their experience of being in exile and then returning to their home country, others who've shared experiences of being immigrants in new spaces, and others still who are part of multiracial or multi-ethnic families who are wrestling with the concept of home and identity and culture. Well, on the last show, I finally had the chance to talk to some kids and ask them about their experiences of defining home. Six brilliant students at the International School of Kenya shared with us their experiences of growing up around the world as third culture kids, or TCKs. TCKs are defined as those who are growing up outside the home country of either one of their parents during their formative years. The students on the show made us laugh, they made us think, they inspired us, but they also made us ask some very important follow-up questions about what we can do to best support them as they navigate their global lives and experiences. Today on the show, as a follow-up to that conversation, I have the very good pleasure of interviewing Ruth E. Van Rieken, who's one of the leading voices in the TCK world and co-author with David Pollack of the seminal book on the topic. Their book, Third Culture Kids, Growing Up Among Worlds, is in its third edition and has really been an important resource for parents and teachers who are supporting kids who are constantly in a state of transition between cultures and countries. Equally important and particularly relevant for 2019 is the introduction of the word cross-cultural kids, or CCKs, that Ruth has coined and introduced into the conversation. CCKs can be immigrants, refugees, or anybody who's had to navigate a space where they are not a part of the dominant culture. Thanks to the wonders of Skype, I was able to interview Ruth from her home in the United States while I was sitting in my home in beautiful Kenya. We talk about TCKs and CCKs, and she shares many wonderful stories and suggestions of what we can do to give our kids both roots and wings. As can be expected, there are a few sound glitches, but nonetheless, the conversation was rich and funny, and I think you'll really find it useful, whether you're a parent, teacher, or just somebody who's curious about the experiences our kids have in today's very modern and global world. So, welcome to the show, everyone, and I hope you'll enjoy this Skype conversation with author Ruth E. Van Rieken. Ruth, you have, um, we mentioned even before we were recording, you and I were talking a bit about the evolution of the term third culture kid. And your book is very clear about how they are defined, in part, I think, to give clarity to the reader and to the person experience it, you know, kind of where they might fit in this spectrum of third culture kids. And then, of course, this newer term, but a term that has been around, I think, in terms of our experiences of being cross-cultural and cross-cultural kids and the ways that they also experience the world. So for the sake of our listeners, could you give a brief distinction or how would you define the difference between the two? Just so that as we're talking, we have a sure, what, no, what Absolutely. Address. No, it, it's, it's critical. Uh, concepts are vital to keep straight. Let me just go back one minute and say the origin of the term third culture kid was when Ruth Husim, a sociologist, and her husband went to India to study international business and how people from different cultures did business together. Ruth became more fascinated with the children of these people who had come from other countries and were living in India. So they come from a first 
or home culture. They were living in a second culture, but they had formed a way of life that was like a subculture. And even though they came from different countries and all that sort of stuff, they had made a life there that was familiar and and a subculture really. And that's what she called the third culture. And she became very interested in the children that were growing up in that. Dave Pollack went to Kenya actually in the seventies and he worked near one of the international schools. And he also saw there were differences in many of the characteristics of these kids that were growing up between cultural worlds and went back to the States and started an organization to try and help. And he developed the third culture kid profile, the common characteristics that he saw, both the benefits and the challenges. And so I met him in 84. And um, so at that time, I think a lot of the different groups, like the missionary kids thought they were the only ones, the business kids thought they were the only ones, the military kids thought they were the only ones, corporate thought they were you know, the only ones, or foreign service or whatever. And through the work of Dr. Yusim and Dave, they began to understand that 90% of what they shared in their experiences in these different sectors was common, that there was something that was very characteristic for kids who grow up between different cultural worlds and high mobility. Those were the two main characteristics, that this was a lifestyle that was cross-culturally mobile. And if you aren't moving, your friend is moving. So there was huge separation cycles and cross-cultural changes. And so identity and really attachment issues of losing became kind of the hallmark of many of the things as well as the benefits. So the book came out and we were talking about these things and I started going on the circuit too. And all these people would come up and say, I, I relate to what you're talking about, but I didn't do it that way. Am I a TCK or not? And many of them, if you talk to their story, they were immigrants, they were refugees, they'd lost their countries, they were in limbo. Uh, others were people who uh, went to school in a different culture. One Asian TCK said to me, you know, when I go to the international school, it's a completely different culture than when I go home. Uh, another friend who was African-American raised in one place in New Orleans was the first black child to go to a private Catholic school after integration started. And she said, I did this every day. I took a bus and I just switched worlds. So it became complicated because if everybody was a TCK, um, then how were we going to understand sort of the parts that were alike in these experiences and then the parts that were specific to each one. So in 2002, I felt like we needed to have a new term and I made an umbrella term. And a TCK is a cross-cultural kid. A cross-cultural kid is someone who's interacted meaningfully with different cultural worlds in their first 18 years of life. And they can be from a binational family. Grandmas can have different languages. Cultures of your grandparents can be very different. Uh, you can go to school in a different culture. Minority families are often interacting with a dominant culture back and forth. Uh, international adoptees, you can switch cultures in your own national world. You know, if you grow up as a Maasai and on the Masai Mara, and then you come to Nairobi, that's a pretty different cultural world. So 
if we can get the language bigger, then we can look at the third culture kid experience as what I would call a petri dish, where we've looked at the impact of growing up cross-culturally and with high mobility. And in these other experiences, you don't have to have necessarily geographic mobility, but in the sense of switching countries, but you're switching cultural worlds. I did something recently for foster um, people who work with foster kids. And every time they switch a family, they're having a different culture. But what to me is also interesting, after I made that model, people came up to me and they said, can I be in more than one circle at the same time? So if we make the third culture kid not only someone who's grown up outside their parents' country, but they've done it for a specific reason. They've done it because of their parents' choice of work. Then you can look at a refugee who grew up outside their country for a different reason, and, and maybe they would have more trauma or whatever. But people who were looking at the model came up to me and said, but I'm in four and five circles. And if you look at Barack Obama's story, he was a third culture kid because he was growing up in Indonesia and his mom was American. But he's also binational. He's biracial. He went to school in an Indonesian school, so he was an educational CCK. He was considered to be a minority in many places he lived. He was domestic TCK in that he switched different cultural worlds even within the boundaries of his country. And all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, the whole story is getting so complex that it's not just um, the traditional TCK model, mm -hmm. but we have a lot of other yeah. factors to put in. Yeah, thank thank you so much for that. It's such a rich, rich answer of how our world has evolved, but also what has always been there that we now just have better language for. Um, you've touched on so many things that people here were asking about and as a follow-up to our conversation with the students about race, about bi right. uh, nationalities within homes, about even like you've um, already really clearly mentioned about the connection within somebody's own home country. So let me just dig into right. some of the questions that I've received from parents and teachers who are working really closely with this population here in Nairobi, Kenya. One question that really resonated with me was how, how do parents and adults help kids um, both be adaptable as they transition between cultural experiences and at the same time maintain their identity? Um, certainly it's not either or, but it seems like maintaining your identity and being adaptable might require different skill sets. So what's your take on that? Is there something we can do to really help students navigate that tension? I think what you're asking is actually a very universal question, which is still being answered. So I'll give you my answer. Okay, great. <laughs> the bottom line is that if you look at the way people have always formed identity and in the new edition of the Third Culture Kid book, which by the way is Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among Worlds, third edition. And we have a new author, Michael Pollack is David's son. And since David died in about 10 years ago, um, this has really been an important edition because Michael of course grew up with this topic and has worked in international schools in China for 10 years. So um, many, many things I'm talking about are in the book and people may not have seen it because it's only been out about a year and a half. The question of identity is the number one issue that many kids face. And we have a new chapter, chapter six in the book 
and we talk about mirrors and anchors and that the mirrors and anchors of a child's life of, of identity normally would be family, community, and place. And if you think about how people historically found identity, they were in one place for those first 18 years, generally. Their family was there, it was consistent, the community was there, and they grew up with not only these anchors that were steady, but they grew up with these entities reflecting back to them who they were. If you think about the ugly duckling story, he didn't know who he was because he had no mirror to say, to tell him this is who you are. But in a family, in a community, a place where parents, in their relationship to this, there's, there's this sort of environment of safety and hopefully, and, you know, continuity. So the child starts learning culture, they get the rules, they practice them, they integrate them and they move on. What happens for cross-cultural kids is that those circles change. Um, when a child takes an airplane ride, he loses community. And he not only loses community, he loses how his parents relate to that community. Maybe in one place, the parent was, you know, president of the bank. Then they go back someplace else and the father is... I'm thinking of my Liberian friends after the war. We had friends who were, he was the president of the university. And when he came to the States as a refugee, he basically was working in hotels just to make money, you know, cleaning and things like that. So that relationship can change. But anyway, the community changes, but the place also changes. And so when I grew up in Nigeria, soccer was our game. And we, I did all kinds of things socially that were not doable when I got back to Chicago. So all of a sudden, the process of, of learning identity is interrupted. I think that concept of mirrors is so powerful. Um, okay. You've already alluded in your earlier uh, definition of TCKs and CCKs around even this racial identity. And that was something that came up to right. um, our podcast conversation. And um, I think, you know, at certain points of our life, younger to older, we will wrestle maybe more at other times. Um, but just to get to dig in a little bit deeper to this idea of mirrors, how much do you think that is tied into uh, racial identity or is it more, is it broader? Is it really more tied into a national identity of being a Swedish national or being a, you know, a Cameroonian national? Is it, yeah, can it, does it break down then on multiple levels that you need multiple mirrors perhaps right. in the world to then cement your no, identity? It breaks down on many levels because if you grew up in that traditional place and the community around you shares your values or at least your parents' values, you go to school, you know, you have the same basic environment culturally in the deeper levels of culture uh, where the same values are kind of esteemed and all that. Um, by the time you're 18, you've got a pretty good idea of who's an us and who's a them, you know. I'm a Swedish or I'm a Cameroonian or I'm a Nigerian or whatever. Um, and you're not. And that doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It just means I know who and who's who. And um, so then when we keep switching, take me when I was in, we have another box in the, in the book that's called the Paul Van box where it depends what you are, what you look like versus where you are in the dominant culture. When I was in Nigeria, I'm white. And so when people looked at me, they presumed I was a foreigner and they were correct. Now I could relate, I could have friends, but in my deepest places of myself, 
I was not a Nigerian in the same way that a fellow Nigerian might be. Then I took an airplane ride, but I became a hidden immigrant because when people looked at me, they presumed I was the same inside. But I had not grown up there. And I heard that with a lot of your kids. And so, so my, my identity, my mirror changed. In one place, I was a foreigner. Now they're telling me that I'm supposed to be like them. And I'm not like them. That's why I thought, well, what's the problem? There are other kids who are in the adoptive category. They may look like the, they may not look like the dominant culture, um, but they've grown up in it, and there's so much like it. They can be truly adopted, international adopted. But sometimes kids grow up in a country that is not their own, and they become so assimilated into it that they. Um, you know, feel it inside, or they can just be in the in the world. It's changing. How many Asians in America do I hear talk about when people say, "But where are you really from?" And you know, they say South Bend or right, absolutely, you know, someplace uh, because their presumption is based on an old assumption of what it means to be American. And then there's the mirror category where you do grow up and are like, you know, you think like the people around you as well as look like them. But the interesting thing is there are some TCKs who are mirrors in their host country, or they can be hidden immigrants in their host country. But I, one girl from the States said when I'm in France, where she grew up, she said, I'm a mirror. I felt totally French. Nobody knows I'm not French until I come back to the States and then I'm a hidden immigrant. So the the part of the mobility thing is the mirror keeps changing because the, the world around me keeps telling me I'm somebody different than the last group told me. And that that becomes part of our identity issue. Some of the questions that I have certainly as an Ethiopian immigrant into the United States is, then do we need a new term for immigrant? Because when I hear you using the word hidden immigrant, for example, um, and especially if we tie it to race, I just think, gosh, but then what do we do with this concept of privilege and the idea that certain groups, as you mentioned, dominant cultures will be ascribed certain amounts of privilege that a, a minority culture just will not. And so it just, I think, you know, our point at the beginning was a little bit around terminology and how important that is. Right. And at the same time, same thing to everyone, you know. So I, I, that that causes a little bit of uh, stirring in me, I guess, to hear that hidden immigrant. While well, I understand it, it, it doesn't address the privilege issue for me, I guess. Okay, well, let me do two things. I think that language is important. And one of the things that I prefer to use in the States now is hidden diversity because diversity is actually done here on the visible mostly. And what is underneath is very often missed. But I think um, some of the other questions and what you're asking here um, are huge issues as well in the evolution of this topic. Certainly it started out, as somebody said, it seems very Western, you know, and I think that's the first researchers were and that's who they were studying. But as life has gone on, there's no question that this is far more universal. So again, in the last book, we've tried to answer some of the things, even for TCKs, let's just start with them. It's not the same idea of privilege for everyone. One of the stories we have is from Myra, Myra Dumapius, who runs tckid.com. She was a Filipino um, foreign service child, but she said because her country was poor, they never paid for her to go to international schools. So she had a totally different, um, a very different experience. And so she was presumed to be 
you know, rich and all that, but she wasn't, or their family wasn't because they didn't have the same perks that other people had. I think that uh, the other question also that you're raising, which is huge and needs to be discussed in much more uh, broader terms is depending on where you are raised. I was a minority, but I was definitely a privileged minority. There's no question about that. Some TCKs are raised where they're definitely in the discriminated against, you know, they might or might not have been at home, but they go someplace and they, you know, have discrimination. The hidden immigrant thing was because originally when this was begun, when that term was made in the 80s, um, the idea was if somebody knew I was from another place, they would give me license not to know something. But because the other people, I was pre-integration days when I came back to the States. Basically, I looked like the kids in my, my school. But then when you speak, I even spoke like the kids in my school. Sometimes you can look like the dominant culture, but if you speak differently, then people figure that out. Very good question, uh, Lily. And and how do we change that term? As I said, if I'm using it in the States, I try and talk more about hidden diversity, but then I found out even the word diversity has a whole baggage with it. So language is a huge issue we're all wrestling with right now. It is. And I appreciate that have the opportunity to have this conversation because um, sometimes what you can't get from a book or a podcast for that matter is the richness of just dialogue and going back and forth and and talking about culture identity and diversity is is hard for a lot of people um, it puts our defenses up it's very it personal um, and so sometimes we struggle around that but I think digging deeper allows us to also connect um, in more ways um, I want to um, kind of circle back to maybe our my original tent in this conversation which was in part to continue the conversation we had before, but also provide resources for parents when they start to notice that their kids are either struggling with identity or they're not mm-hmm. adapting. Let's say they're moving to that third or fourth country and mm-hmm. now they're older, the losses are greater, you know, um, and, you, mm-hmm. and you write extensively about grief and your book and then subsequent people who have quoted your book talk a lot about the grief of all of the moving and the changes in culture and the changes in relationships. I'd love to offer the listeners maybe some really concrete um, ideas of maybe there's two or three that rise to your mind as being really the most helpful or the things that we should prioritize of how we help kids um, process grief as they move. Right. Thanks for bringing that up because identity is one huge issue, but unresolved grief is the biggest other issue that really keeps Uh, TCKs or CCKs for moving ahead with their story. The issue is, first, why why do we have so much? And I think we just need to say it's normal when you lose something you love that you grieve. You can't not grieve. And grieving, generally, if we lose someone we love in death, we have a, a process of mourning. We have a process of saying goodbye. We have a process to eventually look ahead, but we don't run from what the loss is. So one of the reasons that we have the unresolved grief here is that when we have these cycles, our losses are often hidden. Until I was doing my journaling at 39, I never knew I'd lost my world when I was 13 because it wasn't officially my world. But with one airplane ride, I lost it all. But we were going to have 
happy days the next day and go see grandma. So there's no time to process the grief. So that's another issue that our grief happens, but it happens quickly and we're on to something else before we have those moments. It's also, we don't often give ourselves permission or our kids permission because we can easily talk about all the good things and we forget that um, there are some tough things. And so often parents comfort, they encourage before they comfort. And that was probably the biggest thing in my story when I realized I was 39. People always told me how good it was. And they were right. I loved my life. I loved all these good things. So then what do I do with the losses? But nobody ever sat down and said, you can cry. It's okay. Because parents are also going through their own grief and mourning, but also they're trying to help the kids. So if we're going to talk about this, what we have to realize is we can process it. And Dave Pollock developed what he called the raft, which I think has become kind of classic. But it's reconciliation. Before you're going to leave, there are also very clear stages we go in. First, we're involved in a community. Then we find out we're going to leave. Or you find out, you know, in some other form of life, something's changing. And we have a whole psychological thing that happens. We start to pull back. We start to think, you know, other ways of the future. I never liked my friends before I left because I that was how I would cope. I didn't like them. I didn't know why we were friends. Stupid way to leave. Anyway, so reconciliation is to find the places where you maybe need to say sorry or goodbye or whatever, especially if you've been doing these things like I used to do, and see what you can do to leave with good relationships. Then affirmation is the next piece. Intentionally help your children to think about who they have really appreciated in this place. Appreciation and thankfulness is really important in our lives. It names the things that were good. And just saying thank you, finding ways to maybe you have a little party and you say thank you, you've been good friends. And don't run from what was good because you think we're gonna be too sad to lose it. Remind the kids and address it. F is farewell, say goodbye with intentionality. You can write the note. It can be part of the affirmation, but, you know, affirming, but then saying goodbye. And Dave always talked about saying goodbye to people. That's kind of obvious, maybe, and finding okay. ways okay. to decide who. To places. Places are important. You can take pictures. Go back and visit those places that your family has, you know, enjoyed and been part of your memory. Uh, to pets, uh, finding ways if you can't take them to make sure they're cared for, that the kids can say goodbye. And then to possessions. Sometimes parents don't understand how important something is to their child. When we left Liberia, my daughter was 10 and she wanted me to bring all the dresses I'd sewed for her that were her little sundresses. Well, she's never going to wear them, but they're in a box here so she can see them because possessions tie us to a place. And they remind us. So uh, find out what it is your kid wants to take, or maybe if you can't take everything, who we're going to give this to and how can we remember it? And then you think destination. That's the last one. T is to think destination. How do we start to think, well, where are we going? But too often people do that before they've said the goodbye. And so that's what winds up that there's no uh, grief. I mean, the grief is unresolved. But if then we do think destination, what is going to be ahead? Can we get somebody there to be a mentor, somebody who can help us make that bridge, somebody who can 
um, teach us about the new place. And that's the thing. When people say goodbye well, they can say hello. But it's, if you say goodbye well, then that piece is done. You go into transition period. That's never easy because that's when you start to think, did I make a mistake? And the kids wonder what's going to happen. But if you've been prepared, when you get on the other side, you can start to enter much with a much clearer space. Um, and what is here? And yes, we we still love the past, but we're we're moving on. The other thing I think for me that's a helpful concept is to help TCKs try and understand they're not losing the past, they can build on the past. Too many times I'm meeting now in the days with Face and Skypebook that TCKs get to the next place and they only want to stay in the past. And so that becomes another challenge. How do we move from to the future when it's more convenient to stay in the past? But I think if we can help kids understand that it's great to stay connected. It is great to stay connected. But, you know, this is your foundation. It's been built strong. You've got really good bricks in your foundation. But life is about building. And this is our next layer of bricks. And how do we build and how do we do this well so that we have a strong structure? But I, I appreciate about the raft kind of um, yeah symbol, but also just the breaking it down is that you can adapt it by the age your kids are in. I think about my kids who are, you know, between 11 and 16 and will be, yeah, all teenagers by the time we move. I can think of really age-specific things that will help them reconcile, affirm, say farewell, and think destination. And if I had a four-year-old, just having those principles in mind would help me think, okay, for a four-year-old, what does saying farewell look like? Um, And that's that's so helpful to kind of contextualize it like that. Yes, what what are the one or two things that adults can focus on? And maybe they're similar. Well, you make sure you say goodbye, too, because... Um, and you need to understand the transition model that you start with being involved and then you get this news that something's going to change. And by the way, this can happen. And I had breast cancer a few years ago, and that was a complete transition experience because I got the news and my world changed, you know, and to have this model to go through was very helpful to me. So we can apply it in lots of ways. But, um, so you have the leaving stage and there's very traditional, predictable, I should say, characteristics we do. We do the pulling away, we do all kinds of things. Then you have the transit stage where you're in between, you've left, but you're not in the next one. And that's a terrible stage because you feel lost and you know all the things are gone and where you left your keys, you don't, that place isn't there anymore. And so I can never find my keys. And then you start the entry phase where you not only arrive, but mentally you think I'm going to get there, and then you wind up in reinvolvement. The problem is parents and children and each individual person can be in a very different stage. And often the person who has the job gets there, and my husband went to the hospital, and he's got a stethoscope, and, you know, he's off and running. And I'm trying to figure out if it's icing sugar or confectioner sugar or, you know, what it is when I go to the store. And the kids can be in different stages. So that's another thing you really need to understand is be patient and be kind and be comforting, even if you want to tell everybody to shape up and let's get with the program. But I think another thing for parents that's really important is what my father taught me. He always used to say, unpack your bag and plant your trees no matter where you go. Because he said so many people who live this transitory lifestyle, and that includes the parents, never mentally unpack their bags as well as physically. And they leave, they live kind of in a suspended mode. 
But he said, if you do that, you'll never live. But if you plant those trees, he said, you might not be there to take the fruit off them, but somebody will. So don't be afraid to plant them. And when I went back to Nigeria and I saw, I did get there eventually. When we got to Nigeria, Liberia, then we got a visa for Christmas. So we went back and saw, and I saw my home, which had shrunk terribly. And, but I saw these trees that my father had planted. Now, of course they were full grown, but they had the fruit on. And, you know, I could eat from the fruit. And I thought we can't be afraid to live fully. Sometimes it is hard for us to be intentional and be in the moment. And so as adults, then third culture kids or even maybe cross-cultural kids, I don't know if it's true of them as well, can wall out close relationships. Um, and it, it's hard for them sure. to really, you know, let those bonds go deep. Um, I, I was jokingly saying to the panel that we had that, you know, I always ask people, how long are you here for before I find out so I can know if we're going to be friends? And I'm hearing you say, don't do that. You know, really just go in, go all in, mm -hmm. in your experience. Um, so I guess as, as kids get older and they become adults, how do we, I guess maybe your advice is answering my question, actually, you know, how do we help prevent them from being, you know, kind of standoffish or closed off? And how do we help nurture this openness and this open heart um, as they get older so that they, they can form long lasting relationships? Um, perhaps I've answered the question <laughs> but through your answer. There's more to Well, it, it is a challenge. Uh, when I got married, of course, I had no language at all for my story. And of course, I wanted to be close to my husband. But when we got to a certain point, I'd fuss about the garbage. I'd fuss about something and it'd be like, what? You know, you can take the garbage out. I can take the garbage. I mean, what's the fuss about it? You know, and I never understood it because it was I was terrified if we got absolutely close, that something would happen to him. You know, anytime he was late, I knew he died. Um, you know, there'd been an accident or something. So the first thing I had to do was recognize what I was doing. And the second thing is, that's why it's good for me to know the transition stages, is that I can make different choices to this day. When I'm gonna go on a trip, I often start getting fussy the night before and he'll say to me, is this really what you're fussing about or because you're leaving tomorrow? And I think, well, it's, yeah. you know, whatever. But then of course I have to sort of laugh and he's got it by now that, yeah. you know. And so I think part of it is we can make choices. I say to my friends and we can teach our kids. That's the point too. We can teach our children, I think by our own example, to be open to enjoy every relationship we have, even if we don't have them long-term, there's not one relationship or one person I've met in my life that didn't add something to my life. And so I may not keep them forever, but I can enjoy them in this moment. And I think that um, at the same time, we also have to realize for our children that it's, it's painful. And that's why uh, they really can grieve. They they can be young, but they can grieve. I met one girl who was 10 and she heard us talk about, you know, the grief and this kind of stuff. I mean, I try and tailor it for the kids. And she came back, she said, my best friend left when I was six and I've been mad ever since. And we have to understand that the stages of grief, of course, um, include denial, but also anger and depression. And uh, then, you know, hopefully some form of acceptance and, you know, coming to terms with things. But a lot of times parents don't understand why is my kid acting this way? You know, they were 
fine. And, and a lot of times we call them four different things in this kind of mobility times where people can become the chameleon like me. And we try to just be what we are in this situation. Or a lot of times kids become screamers and they react against where they are, particularly if they're in their quote unquote home culture where they're supposed to be like everybody and they want to say, I'm not. And they, so they can become screamers. They can become wallflowers. Kids who used to not be afraid socially can kind of withdraw. Or some kids are just adapters. They seem to do fine. So when you're seeing these responses in your kids, don't panic. But try and have conversations. Listen to them and say, you know, how is it for you? Um, and is there another way we can do this? That, that's so good. Just like naming it, defining it, letting them have a space. And I guess at some point... There may be a point where we max out our ability to do that and we engage therapists or school counselors or others to. Yes. One thing I take from what you're saying is that the the strength of developing a really strong family culture. Um, so, for example, say, you know, establishing traditions, something that you do every year, no matter what country you're in or, you know, having things that are unique to you as a family actually does anchor you enough to yes. be adaptable to be flexible as you move to also be secure in your identity. So there is value in really understanding, as you said, just no matter what you are, you're a kid first. So really being secure in that identity kind of is, yeah, it's, it's what you mentioned earlier. It's it's a, a brick that you can layer into your experience. Yes. And I think that's a really powerful reminder for us as parents that as much as we might feel the stresses of trying to help our kids adapt to either a new language or a new situation, a new country, that continuing to emphasize that home is our family unit as well is a part of that um, helping them transition is also coming back to that identity. I think that's a really powerful notion yes. that um, is helpful. And it makes me also think about the kids that um, were also on the podcast who have stayed in one place for a long time and they're now the mm -hmm. stayers, you know, they're not necessarily the mm -hmm. leaver, um, but they're not in their home country either and maybe have never mm -hmm. lived in their home country. Um, what are some mm -hmm. practical things we can do to help the stayers how do we help them stay well? You know, we talked about how to say goodbye well. <laughs> how do you stay behind well? Well, the first thing you have to realize is that every time they're friendlies, they go through transition as well. The community goes through transition anytime there's this mobility. So it's becoming a really big thing in the international schools, and it should be in every school in the world because it's becoming universal to um, really think about the stayers. I don't know if you've heard about the SPAN program, Safe Passages Across Networks. Doug oh, Ota wow. and his team um, are building a program to be certifying international schools who wanna participate just like they're certified as IB or whatever, that we have a transition program in place here that teaches our kids how to say goodbye well, teaches them how to um, say hello and all the rest of it. But it also is very dedicated to the idea of the stayers. How do we help them say goodbye to the people that are leaving? How do we affirm their story? I was in American School of the Hague some years ago when they had this program and we were saying what, you know, is the challenge. And one girl in their school, what they always gave somebody when they left was the wooden shoe. And they got to put their picture on the board where they were moving and stuff. And so this one kid whose parents were teachers at the school said, I've never gotten my shoe. Then mm -hmm. I think 
they started to think, okay, how do we give the shoe to the kid who stays? How do we make them, you know, be part? How do they get to say goodbye? Uh, John Hattie did a big study on the mega analysis of all these things about what is important in a child's education and, you know, what factors help and don't help. Mobility, not even international mobility, just mobility was the 131st factor, and it was the most negative factor for any child's capacity to learn because they're finding out when the brain uses up all its chemicals, if the brain is using it to try and adjust and look for friends and all worried and anxious, there's not much left to learn. And so it's a huge new thing developing about scientifically how important it is that we do mobility well. And and John Hattie says if kids don't um, have make a friend in the first month of school, how long-term impacting this is on them. So there's a huge amount of actual science now coming out on the terms of mobility or the, the issues and how to do it well. It shows me that the, the research that we're doing and the conversation that we're having have, have truly evolved from the initial kind yes. of Westerners going abroad for as missionaries or business people or whatnot and trying to figure right. out how to return to back to the West. It's really evolved to incorporate the voices of marginalized communities, refugee communities, immigrant communities who 100%. have to do this idea of mobility. And and in some ways that is um a very it's not it's not only very encouraging, but it's important because our world certainly has so much transition in it. And that's a lot of what I want to talk about on my shows on Uproot is this idea of how do we redefine being uprooted and how does that look as our world changes and how also how does it bring us together? Um, Because there is certainly some of the folks who I was talking to before the or after the podcast in preparation for the interview with you said, you know, who's to say that this TCK conversation isn't just a conversation about the human experience of being othered in some ways. And so some of what I'm hearing you saying is that there is that there is that a uh, common thread, and we are researching it more and understanding it better. Um, let me also just build on that idea of staying. Um, when we stay in a country, for example, our family has been here eight years. Um, mm-hmm. Is there some benefit to really embedding ourselves into the host country more firmly? And certainly, kids at different ages will do that naturally on their own. Right. Uh, when we came here, our daughter was four, and she was in a crash that was, you know, she had Sukumawiki and Ugali sure. every day and accent and she was way more Kenyan than my older kids will ever be um, in a way and so you know what is the value in embedding ourselves in our host country culture to that identity development and all the other things that go along with our you know CCK experience that's a good question and when I was listening to your student say that he hadn't incorporated anything from Kenya I wondered what kind of chai he drinks he probably has more than he realizes in his traditions, knowing him. Right. What is lovely is wherever you live, like if the kids can learn any of the language, kids should learn. I mean, they may not become super fluent, but hopefully many of the internationals teach the local language, even if the kids don't become fluent in it. Starting to be conversant or be able to read the signs, you know, makes you literate. And there should be some kind of uh, appreciation that's also teaching you to appreciate. Um, you know, that other people have languages and things like that. But even more than that, you can tell all your parents, I'm meeting people who are HR, human resources for international companies who say, if we can't, if somebody applies now and they can't speak more than one language, we don't even look at their application. 
because oh, in a globalizing yeah. world to have uh, fluency in anything besides one language is a gift. And I think the thing, okay, let me also say this for parents. One of the, the gifts that we didn't even know we were developing as children was the capacity to move between cultures in a very comfortable way. If I'm playing with my Nigerian friends, I speak Hausa, you know, we do things. If I'm with somebody else, I'm with my British friends, we do tea. The capacity almost to code switch is, um, wasn't like a something we sat down and read a book. We did it. And in a globalizing world, to be out and about and to see the different ways people do things and involved in them and, you know, go to the uh, villages and sit down and have what you can and go to some hotel. I mean, this is part for me of, wow, the world's really interesting. It's really big. And it wasn't even so much, it probably instilled in me much more my ultimate sense of identity as being an international person, somebody who is very comfortable in the international world. And that has also made me more comfortable in my Indiana world because I thought there is a place in this world I really feel so at home. I know it. I don't even know the people by name, but I'm in it and I feel it. And we understand the story of what it is to move and to, you know, all of the things we've talked about. But then I realized I don't know my neighbor's world when he goes to work as an engineer, but we can be friends and we can belong in a different way to this community. So we don't understand the other part of each other's world, but we can understand what we share here. That brings me to kind of the, the big question that many people want to know as they're raising their kids. We, we were struck when we did the panel that all the six students on the panel were being raised by parents who did not grow up the way they did. All their parents had grown up in a home culture, in a home mm -hmm. passport country and had not had the mobility that they had had. So a big question that was looming was, you know, as they grow up and as they adjust as adults, um, you know, what does their experience look like over the lifespan? You know, we, of course, TCKs, CCKs, we talk about those common traits that they share, the strengths, the, the versatility, the adaptability, the cross-cultural communication, potentially also the, you know, having maybe trouble trusting in relationships. But, you know, as they become adults, what does this look like on them? And and how do we as parents who were not, who did not share this experience growing up, you know, how do we recognize, uh, you know, maybe when they're floundering and, and they need that support? Because um, I imagine it'll look different. And we noticed that on our panel that it looked different on our 13-year-olds as opposed to our 17-year-olds even, right. much less when they go into their 20s there, and 40s. There's definitely an age-related issue here. So don't panic along the way. Uh, because finding identity is a universe. That's a human need, whether you're a TCK or not. And it has a sort of a developmental process. Uh, but I think when you do the... Um, the leavings well, and when you listen, when you comfort, when you walk the journey with them, and when you give them permission to be all of the above, that they, most kids do extremely well and use their story in unbelievable ways. Some parents get very upset when the child says, well, I don't feel as African as you, I don't feel as American as you, I don't feel as British or Cameroonian or Nigerian or Vietnamese or, you know, whatever it is. Um, because it's like, what, what, but that's what you, you know, that's who I am. And my, my own mother said to me once, until you started doing all this crazy stuff, Ruth, she said, I thought you were from Chicago. 
And I said, well, why would I be from Chicago? She said, well, because I am. And I said, that's so interesting because your mom herself had spent so much significant time outside. I know. (laughs) I know. But she, this is the difference. Okay, so this is the difference for the people who've been born and raised in one place. They never ultimately question their identity. My mother died at 97. She was always from Chicago. She spent 34 years in Nigeria. I'm sure it changed her, but she was from Chicago. And she definitely was an American. And we still had our little American flags around here, you know, towards the end of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's who she was. And she was, she'd been born, she moved to one house when she was four. And she sold it when she was 86. Okay. You know, I mean, we always came back to that house. That was America. That was, that's who she was. And the other stuff she did, that's fine. Uh, parents who didn't do that, uh, who didn't grow up on the move, root their identity in place and nationality in a way that many TCKs don't. And that can be very scary. But it can also be scary to the TCK who is often being forced into something, you know, like, well, you have to choose. Maybe they don't have to choose. We can let them be more of the above. And so it's really important that we find ways to find new ways maybe of giving definition to people or letting people be, like I said, all of the above and not only trying to define by the old ways. Um, And that's an experiment that's still happening uh, because what we're also seeing in the world is people are pulling back in terror because they don't know what to do with the new. And so they want to go back to the old. And so I think it's it's a really, really critical time in our world. And all of us who've lived it and know that we can connect with people of very different backgrounds and very different languages and very different experiences and have joy, um, I would hope could become a, the part of the conversation. If I understand you correctly, in terms of, you know, yeah, there's definitely the developmental differences that we see as in our kids as they're growing up and, and what this looks like on them. And then as they get to their 20s, 30s and 40s, in your experience in this work, do you find that TCKs as they grow up identify with their home country the most? I mean, you've given your personal example, but what in your work, what do you notice as the trend? Do people identify? Yeah. What, do, what, what becomes of these kids? Do they then replicate the life for their own families or choose to stay put? I think all of the above. I have a granddaughter who grew up in Indianapolis, but of course her mother was a TCK. I'm a TCK. She's going to university in Spain. I was absolutely floored. She said, I've always wanted to travel because you guys all travel. So she's going to university in Spain. And that was a big surprise. And she's having a ball. And she, you know, so she grew up as the descendant of TCKs, but, you know, not one herself, and she's living like one. Other people, um, I think it's all of the above. We also have our personalities. We have our jobs. And some people, you know, are very happy to settle and and be one place. And yet often if you see like one lady was teaching writing to the homeless, you know, she was in one place. She said, I always wondered why I cared about homeless people until I gave my, I understood my story that, you know, I was pretty rootless and homeless. So I think the bottom line for me is the more we can do to normalize this, there's a, there is a place that people have to go through who I am. And when I first published letters and people would call me, I could tell within five years what age they were by where they were in their journey. 
because, you know, like me, when I was in high school and college, everything was fine. You know, I had no issues. Then I start to see how I'm behaving with my husband and I don't, don't understand it. And then I get tired of being mad and, you know, I want to know what is my story. And so that's a normal progression of whether TCK or not, people have to understand their story. But I think what drives me is I am passionately convinced the more language we have, the more we understand our story, the more we can use it productively because we can make choices with what we do instead of just being driven by our feelings and our insecurities and, oh, my goodness, you know, what's the matter with me? And the people who use their stories well, if you see them, you know, all over the place, um, Christian Amapur, you listen to her, she has such a depth of perception behind when she talks. You know, she she gets it. Uh, so many people like that are the writers. They may not use the TCK language. Movies all over the place now are talking about identity. And each one or all these TEDx talks, it's like everybody thinks they're the only person who's struggling with this. And I think if we could have a, a unified conversation, we can really help each other not feel so alone individually, but also connect because the people who are doing this are from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of stories. And it's the same theme, you know, who am I compared to who other people think I am or how do I find myself among the many choices I have? And that theme is everywhere now. Probably the number one question I got from people who are engaged with this podcast was how do we prepare them to go back, quote unquote, home? And you've talked so clearly and beautifully about leaving place to place. So from station A to the next station to the next, when you stay back in a station and others are transitioning and leaving. But then I guess for me, the final piece of the puzzle is when you're now ready to go, quote unquote, home, you know, what are the practical things a parent or a teacher could do to prepare that student, whether they're 17, 18, going back for uni, or if they're much younger, what are some practical guides for us as we prepare to go back to our home countries, our passport countries? Obviously, reentry is probably the greatest challenge that most kids face in life. And the reason we've alluded to before is because where they're expected to be in the know, they're expected to be like the other kids in their school. And this can be particularly deadly when kids um, go back in middle school or high school and all the other kids have been there forever. And in international schools, we're used to the mobility. We're used to new students coming and going. A lot of times when kids come back to some school in a local community, those kids have been there the whole time. They're not used to taking in new kids. And as someone said to my daughter who was trying to fit in someplace one time, it's like Legos only have so many places to attach. And once all the places to attach are full, they don't have room for somebody else. So part of the critical thing here is that kids sometimes will wind up attaching to the other outsiders. And they may be outsiders because they're new also, and that's fine. But some of them are outsiders because they're the troublemakers or they're not the ones people want in the school. So parents, if you can find mentors or people to who be your kid's age, that's not always easy, but, you know, who kind of teach them the ropes or something, um, that can be helpful. But that can be middle school and high school are 
painful times anyway in terms of identity in the best of worlds. And so this this can really be a problem because the kids they're meeting with at home are also trying to figure out who they are. And if they align with a stranger, you know, they might get ousted. So that's one time and an age-related issue, I think. I think when the kids go back for university, in some ways there's almost more hope than before because kids have kept up with you know some of the cultural things on the internet so they may not be as ignorant as I was but I think sometimes kids have sort of established themselves in their own mind as um, a, an international student when kids sort of process through all these schools and they're with their peers without thinking about it I mean the people may be from all kinds of countries but when anybody's in the ISK they are living in a cross-cultural community, and that's the norm. And so you also are in a place where in that environment, you can develop your gifts. If you're good in drama, there's ways you can do it. And this community, which is back and forth and around, still knows how to take people in and help them develop and all that. So a lot of kids, I think, go back fairly confident in who they are in their assessment of what their gifts are and, and all that. Not everybody, but many do. And they can start college or university with a new group of kids and who are also, you know, trying to find friends. And so that's fine. And a lot of times TCKs gravitate to the international clubs or they wind up, um, you know, just by, by natural inclination, finding other people who are from different cultural worlds or maybe a farmers from a different cultural world. But so there are different times, but I think knowing that the transition is the same need to prepare for it and the same need to do it well and walk through the transition stages in reentry is critical. This is not, you're not just going home. And parents often are buffaloed themselves because they think they're going home and they also have changed. So there are two books uh, that I know about. Um, that Tina Quick has written. One is Global Nomad's Guide to University Transition. And the other is for international students who are gonna to go to the school in the States. So both of those are a little bit um, geared towards if you returning to the States, but there might be good principles or look for other books that are out there for all that. I would also say, I haven't mentioned this, but for those of you who want more resources, Summertimepublishing.com is a publishing company that basically all their books are for people living this. So there's a huge amount of resources there. So if you go to summertimepublishing, all one word.com, and click on their expat bookshelf or bookshelf, they've got things for careers, second careers, they've got things for the kids, they've got things for all kinds of issues there, but it's it's another place. One of the books there is Be at Home. That's for 10-year-olds. And you read the story of the little teddy bear who goes on transition. And it's put in child's language. So, you know, if you're going to be making a transition like this, um, reading the story with your kids, uh, those kind of things. There's another book there by Chris O'Shaughnessy, which is for the teenagers. And um, he's, you know, life in between or something like that. So there's all kinds of things now that there weren't there 20 years ago. And it's very exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And I think, you know, all the work that you've done around trying to give it language, give it meaning, give it definition has trickled down to students now, you know, before they hit these junctures, having language for who they are and what they're experiencing. It's informed so much of what teachers and parents are doing and trying to do in schools. And Ruth, it's been really a delight and a pleasure to talk with you because you are, you have led the way on this topic. And I know you've had colleagues who have contributed to the work and to the research, but truly your book has been a guidepost for so many. And I know in our international school community, it is the reference that everyone kind of starts with uh, to help them understand and make sense of their world. And so thank you for your work and your important contributions. And thank you so much for being on Uproot today. Thank you for having me. And one final word, um, if you're using the book, I hope you can get the third edition, because in there, in terms of even re-entry, Michael Pollack has added a whole bunch of new models about predictive, um, what what factors are predictive for how well the kids will do. I forgot to say that. And so that's a whole new section that we have towards in our transition. He writes a chapter for parents on transition, and that's one of the things he includes is how do we sort of predict where the difficulties might be and and so forth. So um, it's wonderful to be here. I appreciate everybody who keeps spreading the word because it is um, it's a very interesting topic. It's a lovely topic, but I think it's important for all of us who live it to live it well, that we can find language and community and communication. And that's what you're doing, Lily. And I appreciate that so much. And thanks to all of you who are listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. I am particularly indebted to my friend Van Watley, who set up the interview with Ruth. Van, we miss you in Kenya, and thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who submitted a question. I hope today's conversation provided at least a few answers. And lastly, as always, I would love it if you would follow me on Twitter at Uproot and Lil. That's Lil with two L's at the end. On Facebook and Instagram, it's Uproot the Podcast. As my hero Wangari Mathai says, you have to keep at it until it becomes rooted. Thanks for listening. Let's talk soon.